Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And while we're a little late this year, uh, as my listeners know, every year I like to take a look at the state of American labor right around Labor Day. And again, we're a little late, but uh, I think our listeners will enjoy it because it's a treat who our guest is today. This is somebody who I followed for a long time. Uh, There are a few who know the state of American labor and have written about it and followed it as well as my guest today. He's Steve Greenhouse. He was with the New York Times for 31 years, I believe, and covered labor for quite a few of those years. He's also the author of two books, which I recommend. Um, one is was called The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker in 2009. His most recent book is called Beaten Down, Worked Up, uh, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And I'm very pleased to have him as my guest. Steve, thank you very so much for being on. Great to be here, Robin. It's not you're not late for Labor Day. Labor Day has really become Labor Month with everything we're seeing with the UAW strike and the writer strike and the actor strike. It's it's Labor Month and maybe it'll become Labor Fall. Who knows? That's right. I mean, there's so much going on, but I, I, you know, I read your book and it's like, that's only four years ago, but so much has happened since then. And I guess a lot of what impacted labor was COVID. Um, let's start out kind of, kind of say, it seems to me that COVID was actually an overall benefit, if you want to call it that, for the American worker and to some degree. Yes and no. A little background, Robin. So I wrote this book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, where I talk about, you know, how in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, worker power, labor units were really built in the United States. And then they declined, unfortunately, in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan and, and 1990s, and that things weren't so good for workers and unions early the century. And then things start to pick up a little with the teacher strikes in West Virginia, in Oklahoma, in Chicago, in, in Arizona. But, but generally, for workers, were pretty quiet. And then, yes, came the pandemic. And on the one hand, the pandemic really, pardon my French, sucked for workers. It was really bad for workers. I mean, if you were a Trader Joe's worker or a McDonald's worker or a bus driver and you had to go to work every day, you really risked death 
and 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 one of the things that astounded me, flabbergasted me during the pandemic was that, you know, I don't even think five percent of employers gave their workers hero pay or hazard pay, even though you know the white collar workers who are pulling in one hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year work safely at home. Uh, you know, they could go out, go to, you know, go out for coffee at lunch, take, you know, take it easy. Whereas the workers who made 10 and 11 and $12 an hour, you know, who risked their lives weren't getting any, any uh, additional pay. And those workers, you know, their colleagues died, they got sick, they felt lots of pressure, a lot of workers uh, quit, a lot of workers, you know, were sick. So the workers who did show up each day really felt a huge amount of pressure. And at the same time, Robin, um, a lot of companies during the pandemic were making record profits, while many workers were feeling, you know, we're not keeping up with inflation, and they felt something is really broken here. So I think coming out of that, we saw the Teamsters at UPS be super angry that UPS was having record profits while Teamster pay wasn't keeping up with inflation. Now at the UA, you know, at the UAW, um, record profits for for GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which used to be Chrysler. Uh, CEO pay there has gone up 20, 30, 40%. Yet worker pay, uh, you know, for the order workers is down 19% after inflation since 2008. And part of that was the burst of inflation during the pandemic. So the pandemic really, on one hand, pissed off workers immensely. But on the, you know, but the, the, the upside is that workers now really feel angry and mobilized and, and say, you know, we were shafted. Companies are doing great. The stock market is doing great. CEO pay is doing great. We want our fair share. And I think Americans, you know, Americans talk of wanting freedom and Americans talk about wanting fairness. And if they feel that they're not getting their fair share while the people who are driving Mercedes Benzes and going on private planes are doing spectacularly, now we're, I think we're really seeing, you know, people, you know, typical workers fighting back and demanding their fair share. And that's exactly what's going on now in the UAW strike. Before we get to that, I just, because the, the definition of essential workers broadened during the pandemic, grocery store clerks, checkout clerks, I mean, you, they were there. Um, do you think for most people that uh, of the quote, essential workers who traditionally maybe weren't seen that way, have their wages caught up more for where their, their respect is given as shown in wages for the work they did then? So uh, that's a great point. So, you know, the essential workers were hailed as, you know, the economy can't operate without you. We respect you. We bow down to you. But if you ask for a dollar raise, if you want to go from $10 an hour to $11 an hour, you know, forget about it. If you want, you know, if you, yes, you're risking your life each day, taking the bus to work, uh, facing counters, at the, facing customers at the cash register. But if you want hazard pay of $1.50 an hour, forget about it. So, you know, there's this huge hypocrisy, like, you know, it's kind of empty words where society or corporations will say, we value you, um, you know, supermarket cashiers, McDonald's order takers, we value you, uh, you're essential, you're important, but hey, we're not going to give you much in the way of increases in pay. And I think that's why we saw so many workers leave, leave their current employer to go off the, go across the street to get an extra dollar, two, three dollars an hour, because a lot of employers just have this like allergy, like we're not going to raise pay uh, for our em employees unless someone puts a gun to our head. And so I think a lot of workers said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go go to a, to a job nearby that pays more. And that slowly has percolated and forced many employers 
to reluctantly raise their wages, especially at the bottom as the unemployment rate fell to 3.5%. And a lot of people just left the labor force. They retired early after COVID. And it seemed like some forces came together there to create more of a market for uh, workers in order to bargain and and get higher wages. And it, it worked out pretty well there for a while. Yeah, I, I think the people who generally dropped out of labor force entirely were people maybe in, in their low 60s, you know, in their 60s, early 70s, who maybe would have worked, you know, so that to supplement Social Security, but they thought it's just too dangerous with COVID. And, and, and that's left in many ways a shortage of workers and that's lowered the unemployment rate. And that's, you know, in ways been good for workers that they feel emboldened to demand higher pay. And I think that's yet another factor, Robin, behind the strikes. Workers, when unemployment is very low, workers are more willing to stick their ne necks out and demand higher pay and go on strike because they know they're really needed. And it's harder for the employers to find substitute workers, whether scabs or just, you know, replacements. Uh, so it this, really this is. It really is a, a very heady time for workers. And, and 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 as you've probably discussed with your listeners, you know, public approval of unions is the highest it's been in 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 you know since the 1960s. You know, 67% of workers of Americans approve of unions, even with the United Auto Workers strike, something like 57% of Americans support the strikers, whereas only 18% oppose the strike. So, you know, uh workers really have the wind at their backs right now. It, this UAW strike against the big three has the feel of something historic, that something really big may come out of this. Um, give our, our listeners kind of a quick background on what's going on and what's different about the UAW's approach this time. So uh, in my book, Beaten Now Worked Up, I write, I devote a chapter to, you know, what was really the single most important strike in the United States in, in the last century, in the 20th century, and that was the Flint sit-down strike. And I think the workers then, uh, the workers now felt in many ways like the workers in Flint. Uh, back then in 1930, the Flint, you know, the Flint sit-down strike was against General Motors, which was then the largest company in the world. It had very good profits, and the workers felt very beaten down. They, they, you know, were were often hardly earning enough to support their families, and GM was uh, extremely anti-union back then, as was Ford, and the workers thought, let's shut down, let's sit down some key plans to pressure the company to recognize the union and bargain with us. And, and they won that fight after sitting down in the middle of winter for six weeks, you know, fighting, fighting off the police. And, you know, they, and they unionized the world's largest company, General Motors, and they won great contracts and that, and they felt we we're building fairness. And when you heard Joe Biden speak today on the picket line, unions built the middle class, you know, that's what happened with uh, the Flint sit-down strike. And then in the late 40s, early 1950s, again, the United Auto Workers, they went on some major strikes and, and got General Motors to pay much, much higher wages that were key to building the middle class. So now uh, in, the, in the current strike uh, in, in, at, at GM, Ford, and Stellantis, the workers feel they've moved behind in theory uh, Unionized order workers, you know, we've been saying for 10, 20, 30, 40 years are members of the middle class. But, you know, when you fall 19% behind inflation, well, you don't feel so much of the middle class. You feel yourself slipping. Another big factor is, yes, 
the UAW did a great job winning wage increases in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and then, you know, with the Great Recession of 2007, 8, and 9, uh, General Motors and Chrysler filed for bankruptcy. And to get back on their feet, they demanded huge concessions from the workers. So, uh, you know, workers, you know, uh, starting pay for workers used to be $19 an hour and in, in, in 2007. And now they've reduced it to $18 an hour. And that's $18, you know, in real dollars, which is below the $19 from 15 years ago. So, uh, you know, the starting pay is really, you know, after inflation, like 20, 30% below. Anyway, so workers, as workers, and, you know, the UAW members in Flint in 1936, 37, as UAW members in 1950, under Walter Ruther feel that they're not getting their fair share. So, um, you know, as Joe Biden said today, uh, the UAW played a pivotal role uh, during the Great Recession 15 years ago to help the Detroit automakers get back on their feet and become profitable again. And boy, have they ever become profitable. You know, they, they, they've made something like $250 billion uh, over the in, the in the past few years, and workers pay, I'm repeating myself, hasn't kept up with inflation. So the workers feel they're slipping from the middle class. They feel we've helped General Motors, Ford, Stellantis really rebound well, but we haven't rebound, we've moved backwards. So there's there's a, a sense of anger. There's a sense that we want justice. There's a sense that it's time that we should be treated fairly because we day after day, week after week, work so hard to make these companies succeed. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Steve Greenhouse, who covered labor issues for the New York Times for a number of years. He served with the Times for 31 years. He's the author of two books. The most recent one is called Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. It's a great book just for the historical perspective, uh, right up until about 2019 of, of American labor. And we've had just, as we've been talking so far on this show, uh, just to, almost a sea change in what's been going on just since then in the last four years. This UAW strike has drawn attention. You talked about President Biden being uh, being on the picket lines this week. President, former President Trump is making a play uh, as well for, for auto workers. Um, his angle seems to be, and, and you've written about this, Steve, that the Democrats and, and the president are, are are trying to move towards, uh, due to climate change, uh, more alternate energy type jobs, batteries, things like that. But those jobs right now, electric vehicles and all, aren't paying as well. This kind of has the Democrats in a tough spot to a degree. Um, why, uh, how, what are they going to do, I guess, uh, uh, to maybe maneuver around that? Are they going to try to help unionize some of these firms, push for pay increases, especially when a lot of government money right now from the uh, IRA, from the Infrastructure Law, from the CHIPS Act is going into some of these companies? Uh, again, that's a great question, Robin. And, you know, it, so the Democrats and Biden, you know, I think are trying to do the right thing. You know, we face, we, the world, face a crisis of global warming, and, and Biden and the Democrats are trying to make a transition to a lower carbon economy. And they're pushing, and one way, one key way to do that is move quickly towards electrical vehicles. And so, uh, and they're spending billion, you know, they have tens of billions of dollars in federal subsidies to 
accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. And many of these new factories are being built in the South. And, and again, your listeners know that the South is much more hostile to unions than states like Iowa and Illinois and, and, and Wisconsin. And, and you know, right to work makes it uh, unions less less exciting about um, about organizing workers because the workers don't have to pay any union dues. So we have a lot of these new electric vehicle plants, electric battery plants opening up in the South, receiving funds from Biden, and 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 um, and some of them are in, in like in West Virginia and in states that have really been hurting, you know, because of the decline of coal. And I think Biden sort of wanted to do the right things to help states in need, but you know, a lot of companies are jumping on the subsidies to like we want to put our factories in low wage, low unionization states. So, you know, members of the United Auto Workers, leadership of the United Auto Workers are like not happy. Like, why are so many of these plants going to the south uh the low wages there are undercutting our factories in you know higher wage states like you know michigan and wisconsin and iowa and illinois and and, and missouri so there's concern so on one hand they're mad at biden for providing all these subsidies uh for e-vehicles and biden says but you know, if we weren't providing all any the subsidies for electric vehicles, then all the electric vehicles will be made in China and hardly any will be made in the United States. So that's not going to be good for our industry. It's not going to be good for uh, for the auto workers union. So in ways, there's a challenge now for the auto workers union. Like it has to go down to Kentucky and Alabama and Georgia and unionize these electric vehicle plants. But it's not easy. And you know, there's been a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to try to figure out ways that when it's awarding, you know, $500 million here to build this new EV battery plant, that there'll be strings attached. Like, you know, we will, we will, uh, we're more likely to give these federal subsidies to companies that promise to pay higher wages that, that perhaps have collective bargaining that will remain neutral and not, not oppose unions. And, and, you know, the story of unions you know, in, in my book, Beaten Down Workup, I say, you know, this, I talk about America's anti-worker exceptionalism that, you know, we're the only, you know, wealthy country in the world that doesn't guarantee all work, you know, all workers paid sick days. We're the only um, pay, paid parental leave and paid sick days. And we're the only uh, wealthy country that doesn't guarantee all workers paid vacation. And in France, workers are guaranteed six weeks vacation. In Britain, they're guaranteed five weeks vacation. We're the only, you know, wealthy country that doesn't guarantee everyone uh health coverage and and i also say that in the united states unfortunately corporations fight far harder to keep out unions than than any other you know industrial country in the world whether you know france or britain or germany or australia or japan so you know so unions are constantly trying to figure out how do we unionize more workers when there's this often vicious uh Push by companies to keep out workers. And, and we saw that at General Motors in the 1930s, and we saw that at Ford, and now we're seeing it at Starbucks, and we're seeing that at Amazon. So, so again, the auto workers, as we move towards uh, this transition to electric vehicles, are like trying to figure out how do we pressure you know, these factories, new factories in the South to be unionized? How do we pressure them to stop fighting the union? And that is one of the central questions that organized labor faces in the United States today. And they're hoping for, you know, major breakthroughs like the Flint sit-down sit -down strike was a major breakthrough. And, and 
Um, they might try boycotts. They might try sit-ins. They might try, um, you know, uh, you know, getting you know much more community pressure on 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 companies uh, to stop fighting unions. Yeah, it seems like they've lost. Labor's lost some high-profile uh, organizing votes, like I believe a Volkswagen uh, plant down south, and then Amazon. Um, I know they're involved in a really uh, a tough battle right now with Starbucks. It surprises me. You know, you would think Starbucks would be more enlightened and maybe open, but they've adopted some pretty strong tactics, uh, anti-union tactics, which again is is a bit surprising. But share with our listeners what's going on there. So you know, uh, Howard Schultz, the you know, one of the founders of Starbucks, uh, you know, you know, was thinking of running for president as a Democrat. He sees himself as a good. Uh, pro-worker progressive and yet when uh some workers at at uh starbucks stores in buffalo new york start to unionize and that and that spread elsewhere starbucks has been extremely anti-union has been and the workers will say it's vicious and and the national labor relations board has found that it, it has broken the law in many ways that it's illegally fired workers because they supported a union the labor board has found that starbucks illegally closed some stores because they recently unionized. The NLRB has also ruled that Starbucks has you know, reduced the hours of many workers uh, after their stores unionized to encourage them uh, to quit. Um, the NLRB asserts that you know, Starbucks is giving races and better benefits only to workers at its non-union stores, not to workers at its unionized stores. And they say that's illegal discrimination. Starbucks is doing a lot now to pressure workers, to strong arm workers not to unionize. And despite that, workers at, at 350 Starbucks have unionized since uh, in the past 20, 21 months, since December 2022. And Amazon's the same thing. Uh, workers unionized at one Amazon in New York City and Staten Island and Starbucks, I'm sorry, and Amazon still doesn't want to recognize the union is still trying to appeal it to deny the union its victory. It hasn't begun negotiating. And one of the weird things, Robin, is so um, So over the past year or, or more than a year ago, workers at Starbucks for the first time unionized, at Amazon for the first time unionized, at REI for the first time unionized, at Trader Joe's for the first time unionized, at Apple stores, um, uh, Chipotle, did I say? Yet at not one of these companies do the workers have a first contract giving them better wages and benefits. And, and and the workers say, something is broken here. Uh, supposedly, we have a right to unionize, but we can't seem to get to first base in what we need and getting the contract we need to make our jobs better, to make our lives better. And, and the companies, some of those companies seem to be fighting extremely hard to ever reach a contract because they worry, Starbucks worries, Amazon worries that if, if it's work, their workers ever get a good first contract with major raises and better health benefits and better vacation benefits and better education benefits, well, that's going to really inspire a lot of other workers to unionize. So, you know, the, again, the National Labor Relations Board has accused Starbucks, there's a trial going on right now, has accused Starbucks of uh, bargaining in bad faith of, of uh, and breaking the law by doing everything it can to avoid reaching a contract. I should add Starbucks, has repeatedly asserted that it hasn't broken the law even once, even though the union says Starbucks has fired over 200 pro-union workers, asserting they were fired because they supported the union. 
I want to, I guess, but my final question, and we've got about three or four minutes here. I'm going to give you plenty of time, but it seems like to me, uh, you mentioned earlier that public opinion on unions has increased. It seems like, and, and you would know this better than I, but it seems like younger people are more attracted to unions now. Um, is that true? Why is that? I mean, it seems like there is a lot of movement from the bottom up, local, uh, local. And you wrote about some of the innovative ways unions are trying to reach out in non-traditional ways. But uh, are unions more attractive to younger people? And why do you think that is? Yes, absolutely. Uh, younger people are much more interested in unions than even their parents. And, and, and polls uh, bear that out. I think, you know, young people came of age during the Great Recession. They saw their parents struggling. Maybe they saw their older brothers or sisters having a hard time getting a first job. Uh, they said it was clear to them that something is broken in the economy. And they say, uh, we want it to be fixed. Uh, and what way, you know, what, what are the ways to do that? Some people say, well, if you're not happy with your pay, well, then go to Harvard, Harvard Law School, or go to Harvard Business School, or go, go to medical school. Hey, you know, not every, not every uh, American can go to Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School, any law school. And that, you know, a lot of workers, you know, we're in the bottom 50% of the high school class and they're not going to go to law school. And, and, uh, but they deserve, you know, they work hard. Um, they go to work every day and they deserve to make a decent living. And, and they say, how can I improve my lot, my, my, my life? How can I improve my job? How can I improve my pay? And a lot of them conclude unions are the way they go. And they see, the five for 15, which really, you know, more than a dozen states have enacted laws uh, to have a $15 minimum wage. They see, you know, graduate student workers unionizing. They see, you know, workers at Starbucks unionizing. You know, I think Bernie Sanders uh, has inspired a lot of young people about the whole issue of basic economic fairness and that the billionaires are doing very, very well, whereas, you know, tens of millions of Americans are struggling to get by. And I think that, you know, he's, you know, like it or not, you know, he's inspired a lot of young people and, and they feel they want economic justice and they figure what tools are out there to achieve economic justice. And it used to be you can get decent things passed by Congress. You can get a higher minimum wage. You can get Medicare. But now Congress seems hopeless about doing anything, you know, that really helps you know, it helps the average worker. You know, nowadays, you know, Congress can hardly even keep the government open. So I think workers figure, you know, they see unions, you know, they, they you know, they know about how unions helped their grandparents. They read stories about how, you know, they see graduate student workers who unionize doing much better. Um, they see the five for 15 has raised standards for lots of work. And they say unions are the way to, are the way to go. And a lot of these victories are in the service sector which, which uh, is somewhat surprising in, in, a, in an area that hasn't been necessarily ripe for unions in the past. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the big things at stake with the UAW, Robin, is that, you know, unfortunately, the UAW hasn't had a good decade or two. You know, it, it's it's made concessions, and there's been this terrible corruption scandal where, uh, you know, several UAW leaders went to prison. And so when the UAW was trying to unionize Volkswagen in Tennessee or Nissan in Mississippi, the workers would say, why should I join the UAW? What have they? What have they? What have you done for any workers lately? So I think the current strike is really an effort by the new leadership of the UAW to gain a big victory, so the union can tell auto, auto factory workers, uh, uh, auto parts workers around the country, we can really deliver. And I think it's the same thing 
with the with the Teamsters victory at UPS, where they won huge raises and huge improvements, and and the Teamsters are very eager to organize Amazon warehouses, and now they can go to Amazon warehouses and see what we achieve with UPS. We can achieve a lot of the same things with you, for you. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see how this UAW strike plays out. Uh, and for, uh, for for providing some excellent analysis and reporting, Steve, thank you very much for being our guest today. Steve Greenhouse, former labor reporter for the New York Times and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Steve, I'd, I'd love to have you back at some point to talk about this some more. And uh, thank you again. I really appreciate you being on the show. Great, great, great to be here, Robin. Listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.